Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. Who are some of your favorite musical artists or bands? I'm sure if we asked everybody, there'd be a lot of different answers. One that I am unashamedly proud of that makes my wife cringe is Kelly Clarkson. I love (laughs) Kelly Clarkson. No matter what you think is good or not, there is one thing about music, though, that we do need to settle, though, now, and that is Christmas music is overrated, and if we're being honest, just really kind of slightly, not so slightly annoying. In my opinion, Christmas music should start on December 21st and go until December 25th. Five full days of Christmas music for all you lovers of Christmas music out there, and then put it away again for a year. Seriously, think about it. You can't escape Christmas music right now. It's like a bad B horror movie. It follows you everywhere. Every retail store, commercial store, parties that you go to. It's even in abandoned buildings and houses that are for sale. It's crazy. I'm exaggerating, but kind of. And the radio stations do what radio stations do, play the same songs over and over and over until you get sick of it, can't wait for January, and are looking forward to what is actually good music once again. But that's the reason why we are doing this series, Christmas Carols. You hear songs, you start to ignore them, become numb to them, and you can't even stop to think to comprehend what might the words behind the music mean. What is the story associated with this song? As a side note, isn't it kind of ironic that Michael and I, who both openly hate Christmas music, are up here talking about Christmas carols, right? Scrooge and the Grinch are here to get you in the Christmas spirit at Collective. We would both say we're not rich enough to be Scrooge. You can decide who's who. That's totally on you. But think back to some of your favorite artists and bands. How far do you go to demonstrate that you're a fan? Know all the music, that's not that hard. Listen to it in your car, turn it up, dance a little bit, except for when people are watching next to you. You go to concerts, spend money to be there live, enter some online contest, try to win meet and greets, backstage passes, some type of memorabilia. Uh, We went to college with a girl who had a Hanson tattoo do we remember Umbop, everybody out there? If you don't, that's totally cool. If you do, I'm sorry, because it's stuck in your head the rest of your day, and it's just going to be playing on repeat for the rest of the day. But all of that pales in comparison to a woman named Elizabeth Singer. Elizabeth found the music of this cat that she really liked. She loved his music. And as often as he was putting out new hits, her infatuation grew and grew. Soon enough, just the music wasn't good enough anymore. And maybe you can see where this is going. Elizabeth wants to meet her favorite musical artist. And so she digs in, does a little bit of homework, finds a way to send fan mail to her artist. And so she writes a letter to this guy, I'm a big fan, but it's not just a typical letter asking for an autograph. She legitimately proposes marriage to her favorite artist. 
I mean, I guess that isn't all that uncommon. We do crazy things to entertain the thoughts of famous people. There's a reality TV show out there where the first time people meet is when they actually get married. But this isn't reality TV. This is England just before the year 1700. And she writes a letter to a guy whose music she loves and asks marriage. And the crazy thing is, he says, yes, person I've never met before. I have no idea who you are. Let's get married. I, I, I have so many questions that I wish I could ask both of them. But he writes back to her, says, yes, let's get married. She reads this, is very excited, races to him, opens the door to see her new husband. And this is what she has to say about him. He was only five feet tall, shallow face, a hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and best of all, a death-like color. She took one look at him, turned around, went home, never talked to him ever again. Now, don't judge me, but one TV show that I like probably a little bit more than I should is called Catfish. And there are embarrassing things about this. Number one, it's on MTV, and I'm 34 years old, and I'm still watching MTV, and I'm watching the show called Catfish, and I love it. Don't judge me. We all have our secret things. Don't act like you don't have yours, too. But there's this guy, Neve, he's the creator of the show, and each episode, he facilitates face-to-face meetings for the first time between somebody who has been talking to somebody else online for a number of months or years and has never met them face-to-face. Some of the people on Catfish are just really um, not smart shall we say? Uh, yeah, I've been talking to this person for a few months, but we've never FaceTimed before. Or we FaceTimed this one time, but it was really dark in the room and I couldn't see their face. It's like, okay, come on, man, get a clue here. I know you're in love, but get a grip. And I love when they meet face to face for the first time and the person who's interested sees what they perceive to be who they've been talking to, who identity actually is completely different. A lot of times the people who are interested want to get married just like Elizabeth Singer. But they take one look at this person that they think they've been talking to, see their true identity, and walk away. Elizabeth Singer is the original catfish. And in this case, the guy that she walked away from is a man named Isaac Watts. Isaac was born in 1674 in England, and his father, also named Isaac, was a deeply religious man. Isaac Sr. was actually in jail when his son was born because he was someone at that time labeled as a nonconformist. At that time, worshiping and government rule were the exact same thing and same entity, And he believed that you should be able to worship God free from government rule. And because of that, he was labeled as dangerous and thrown in jail because of his religious views. Really, he was just non-conventional and wanted to worship God in a way that made sense to him. And he passed that on to his son, Isaac. And as Isaac Jr. was growing up, he showed from a very early age this remarkable propensity for rhyming. He was great at creating rhymes, even off the cuff even when he probably shouldn't have. 
One day, the family was having prayer time together, and Papa Watts noticed that Junior Watts had his eyes open during prayer time and wanting to correct his behavior. He talked to his son, and he said, why were your eyes open when we were praying? Junior Watts says he was distracted because a little mouse, for want of stairs, ran up a rope to say its prayers. Somewhat amusing, but father, wanting to correct son's behavior, actually spanks him for his response as to why his eyes were open. And immediately, Junior Watts says, oh, father, father, pity take, and I will no more verses make. I kind of feel like that's when a kid now looks back at dad after they got a spanking and they're like, that didn't even hurt. You know, you're just asking for another one at that point. No matter how many times, though, he got in trouble because of his rhyming ability, it's something that grew and stayed with him as he was an adult. His love for God was passed down, father from son, it was passed down. And so Isaac, as he grew into a man, grew up to be a pastor in England. He was such a great pastor that he became a private tutor for other pastors in England, teaching them how to write effective sermons. But his real passion was music, poetry, rhythm. He wanted to put down on paper what he felt in his heart so that other people could experience and worship God the way that he did, free from government rule. And he looked at church music that was being sung at the time, and he thought it was boring. He was not inspired by church music. Maybe that's exactly how you feel as we sing these Christmas songs. This is boring. He thought it was uninspired and monotonous. And worst of all, when he looked out at the people that were in his church singing those songs, he saw no joy at all, no kind of emotion from the people singing. He went to his dad and he started complaining. I don't know what to do, dad. I'm in worship and nobody is actually acting like they want to sing these songs. And so his dad, the unconventional thinker that he was, simply said, fix it. If you don't like something, why don't you do something about it? Be the solution, not just the complainer. And that's exactly what he did. In 1719, Isaac wrote a new hymn or poem every week for two years straight until by the time he died, he'd written over 750 different works of poetry. In fact, if you grew up in the church like I did, singing hymns as a kid, you sang Isaac Watts' work. In fact, he published his own work. It was a translation, a rewriting of the book of Psalms for congregational singing. He called his hymn book, the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. I sure hope his music was better than his titles because that's rough. But what Watts was doing here, he was reading the Old Testament and also looking at the New Testament, two major parts of the Bible, and he was pointing to the person that Jesus is in his work. One of those poems that he wrote was a poem called Joy to the World. About two decades later, uh, Handel, who wrote the song Messiah, which is considered to be an all-time classic, wrote that song, and then a hundred years after that, a guy named Lowell Mason discovered the poem, Joy to the World, and wanted to put it to music. 
He discovered the melody in Messiah by Handel and matched those two things together in what became an instant classic. This was an instant classic that was the original mashup. Before Jay-Z and Linkin Park made mashups cool, if you don't know who they are, sorry, you're too young. But at some point in time, this was the original mashup. People love the song, Joy to the World. In Christian circles and in secular circles, it has, through the test of time, stood as one of the most famous and well-known Christmas songs that we do. And what's crazy, though, Joy to the World is not a Christmas song. If you look at and dig into the lyrics, which we're going to do, you'll find that this has nothing to do with a baby named Jesus traveling a long way, uh, being born in a manger, angels singing in the field, shepherds, wise men. None of that is reflected in the song, Joy to the World. The inspiration for the song is not from Jesus' birth, but from thousands and thousands of years before from who wrote the book of Psalms. Specifically, Psalm 98. We're going to check out verses 4 through 8 right now of Psalm 98. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst in a jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sounds of singing. With trumpets and the blasts of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Watts, commenting on his paraphrase of this psalm, the paraphrase we know is joy to the world, said this, I have fully expressed what I esteem to be the first and chief sense of the Holy Scriptures. What he is saying is, I am pointing towards the main, the chief, the greatest point of the Bible. He is pointing to Jesus. One author put it this way. He said, Watt's lyrical goal was to wed emotional subjectivity and doctrinal objectivity. And that's why nobody likes smart people, because you can't understand what they say. I, I have way too many years of education, and I've read this at least a dozen times, and I'm still a little bit fuzzy about what this author was actually trying to say. So here's my best attempt. Some dude trying to sound really smart threw out a bunch of big words to make himself sound impressive, but lost the meaning of what he said with everyday common people like you and I. But what I think he's trying to say is Isaac Watts took the ingredients of what does this mean to me? This specifically being those verses in Psalm that we just read. What does this mean to me? And what does the rest of the Bible say? How do I stay accurate to the Bible in its entirety? And he threw those two things into a blender. And after some creative process, the result was joy to the world. Isaac Watts was giving new life to Christian worship. There were some people who loved it and some people who hated it. A lot of it was not well received because he was seen as unconventional, just like his dad. Unconventional, being dangerous, free from government rule of what worship was. He was boldly introducing at that time what was contemporary Christian music. And those who stood on tradition had a major problem with what Isaac Watts did. Other people thought this was a breath of fresh air and exactly what the church needed in worship. So if the song is not about Christmas, what is the song about? 
This is a song about Jesus coming back. A lot of times the opening line of joy to the world is incorrectly sung as joy to the world the Lord has come. Has meaning past tense pointing to a baby Jesus that has already been born. That would make sense. We worship baby Jesus. It is a reason for joy. It would make sense that that's a Christmas song, but that's not actually the lyrics of the song. The correct version is joy to the world the Lord is come. And it might seem like small semantics, but the difference here is pretty huge. Watts is not describing a past event. He is pointing towards something that is still to happen. The main point of Psalm 98, Watts' inspiration for joy to the world, is not about baby Jesus coming first, but when Jesus comes back again a second time. Other parts of the song say... When the Savior reigns and he rules with truth and grace. If truth and grace sounds familiar, we throw those words out all the time at Collective on purpose. But the one who will rule with truth and grace is Jesus. And the one who will reign is Jesus when he comes back a second time. Watts is describing the hope that we as people have as we look forward to that event. Our reaction to this knowledge should be joyful music and worship back to God. Everywhere in Psalm 98, there is joyful expression of worship happening because of this future event that will come. The message is very clear. Jesus is coming back. That should be reason for joy. Our response to that joy is to worship God. Now, it's much easier to worship God when you are in a position to receive the joy of when Jesus comes back, which leads straight into the next point of the song is about Jesus breaking the curse. When we sing this song, oftentimes we skip over verse 3 because it doesn't give us those warm, fuzzy feelings that everybody wants us to have around Christmas. The words in verse 3 are very different. No more let sins and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Nobody likes talking about sins and sorrows and curses in December, but he includes this for a very specific reason. What about you? Do you feel cursed? For some of you, that seems like a crazy question, but for a lot of us, that may hit home on a really personal and deep level. Singleness is not a curse. Something bad happening to your pet that you love so much is not a curse. I mean, pets aren't worth the emotional investment, in my opinion, side note, but uh, that is not a curse. Not being able to catch a break with family or with school is not a curse. Watching your kids grow up and make decisions that you don't necessarily approve of is not a curse. All of those things are called life, and your reaction to your life circumstances is to assume that you are cursed. Man, CT, if I didn't have any bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. You are cursed, but not in the way that you think. The very real curse that applies to all of us refers to the very first book of the Bible, specifically Genesis chapter 3. 
Verses 17 and 18 say to Adam, this is God speaking. He says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed, there's the word, is the ground because of you. Through painful toll, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So the curse is twofold, and if Adam was anything like me, I focus on what's right in front of me, what's tangible. I, my work, Adam's work, got very hard. Working in the fields became difficult. Producing crop, food to eat became difficult. That is a curse that is the result of the sin that happened. But the greater curse, the curse of much bigger understanding, is sin separating us from God. And Isaac Watts understands the second coming of Jesus will break this curse. God's ultimate goal for us as people is to restore the relationship that we had with God in the Garden of Eden. That does not mean we're going back to the Garden of Eden, but that desperately means that he wants that relationship back with us that we had. Life in the Garden of Eden was literally perfect because there was no sin. We were free to commune with God, to be with God, and God was free to be with us. But because of our choice, we made sin enter the world, and that created a curse, a divide between us and God. Nothing that, we could, nothing that we do can restore that relationship on our own right. And God, knowing this, sent his son Jesus to earth the first time to live and die so that through his death he would take on our sin so that we can become restored to God and reestablish the relationship that God had with people in the Garden of Eden. The good news about Jesus coming back the second time is that if we accept the gift that he offers, we will again have fully restored relationship with God. This comes through obedience to God and through baptism. If you want to know more about baptism means, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, check it off on your connection card. We'll be happy to follow up with you. But whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, this is great news for everybody in the room because there is one who already has come to break the curse that our sin holds over us. If life and freedom to believe and to trust and to experience God sounds good, and it should... That starts with breaking the curse that sin has in your life. The song is about finding joy in Jesus, not about a woman who breaks your heart. Put yourself in Isaac Watt's shoes. Go back to 1700. You have somebody, crazy circumstances, but you have somebody who is going to marry you, who shows up at your door, takes one look at you, and just to be quite honest, finds you to be incredibly ugly and walks away. And leaves words that were somehow recorded that still last 300 years later. Words don't last that long unless they have some kind of profound impact. This woman, Elizabeth Singer, broke Isaac's heart. So much so, in fact, that he never even entertained the notion of relationship with a woman, marriage with a woman ever again. And he lived single for the rest of his days until he died. But still, Isaac found joy. 
Joy in Jesus' promise to come back. Joy in Jesus breaking the curse that sin held over him and that sin held over us. There is a lot to be joyful for in the month of December. And I am naturally a little bit Grinchish by nature. I am trying not to be for the benefit of my family, especially because we have a two-year-old little girl who is starting to grow in knowledge of what Christmas is and really loves Christmas this year. We put up our tree last week and... Last year, she didn't care about the ornaments, wasn't interested at all. But this year, she pulled each one out of the box one by one, and she literally squealed with excitement as she looked at each one and then gave it to me or gave it to my wife, Rachel, to put on our tree. And you take joy in those moments. It's like, okay, kid, I need you to stop, please. This is really awesome, but my heart's going to burst if you do this anymore. So just tone it down a little bit for my sake, please. And it's one of those moments you just want to capture and hold on to for the rest of your life. There is joy to be found in December, in the Christmas season. Our oldest daughter loves looking at lights. Uh, and we, we come to church early and it was still dark outside on our way here and she was pointing out the lights as we were on our way to church this morning. She loves, loves getting all kinds of pretty dresses and dressing up really fancy and looking very pretty. She very much enjoys all the special treats that she gets this time of year that normally we don't let her have. And she loves the family time as well. And so you grow into this joy of Christmas because of some of what it can be. And the parties are great. If your schedule is anything like our schedule, the parties have already started and they're happening. There's two or three on different days. Wrapping of presents is really great too. But Christmas is and always has been about Jesus, the joy in him coming as a baby and the joy to be found in the hope in his second coming. So why do we sing the song at Christmas? As we wrap up, it's an interesting thought. This is not a Christmas song. Isaac Watts never intended for this to be a Christmas song. He never intended for it to be a song at all. He didn't want this to just be something we pull out every 25 days in December and put away for the rest of the year. He wanted this to be hope and a constant reminder of the joy that we find in Jesus all year long. Isaac Watts brought that breath of fresh air into the church way back in 1700. And if you let the song and the message behind the song into your hearts, it will do the same for you today. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the joy that is found in a song that we've heard hundreds, maybe even thousands of times before. The joy that is found, yes, in a baby, but just as much and even more so in when you and your son will come back again and what that means for us, the hope that means for us. We pray that that joy captures our heart, not just in December, but in March and in June and in September and all year round. It's in your son's name. Amen.